Let's open our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. 2 Timothy chapter 1, and verses 4 through 7. Let's read from verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers day and night, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your, dwelt in your mother, grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. And for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Paul's prayers were regular and included thanksgiving to God for his good friend and fellow minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Timothy. He prayed those prayers with a clear conscience, following the pattern of those who had gone before him. Last week, we considered just one verse. That was verse 3. This week, we move on to verse 7, or verses 4 through 7. But as we do that, let me remind you that Paul and Timothy were friends, close friends. By By the time that 2 Timothy is written... Paul and Timothy had known each other for at least 16 years and had worked together for 16 years. Timothy first appears in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, as Paul's disciple, whose mother, the text says, was a believer, but his father was a Greek. That's Paul's way of telling us his mother was saved, but his father was not. He was a third-generation Christian after his mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, as we'll see in verse 5 today. The Apostle Paul was most likely the one that God used to lead Timothy to faith in Christ. That's why not only here, but in another place, Paul calls him his son. He's not talking about his, he's not his genetic offspring, but he's his spiritual offspring, if you like to use that terminology. But it's very likely that Paul led Timothy to faith in Christ on either the first or the second missionary journey. He refers to him in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, as my true child in the faith. Timothy had a solid reputation among those of his hometown of Lystra, according to Acts 16, verse 2, and it was from that little city that he became Paul's companion and assistant on his second missionary journey. He was with the Apostle Paul as Paul moved from Asia into Europe after receiving the Macedonian vision. Timothy was with Paul in Philippi when Paul and Silas suffered many blows before being jailed. And again on their next stop in Thessalonica, where the Jews became so angry with the ministry team that they were forced to flee in the middle of the night to nearby Berea. If you'll recall, while they were in Berea, the angry Thessalonian Jews found out that they were having an effective ministry there and traveled from Thessalonica to Berea and agitated the crowds there. At the urging of the believers in Berea, Paul decided to go to Athens. But he left Silas and Timothy at Berea to to establish the church there. Now, I know some of you don't like history. Some of you might have just ignored what I just said. But but pause and let that sink in. Everywhere they went, where, where there was violence either performed or threatened, Timothy was there with Paul. 
And when, when Paul is run out of Philippi, Thessalonica, and then Berea, Paul is the one that leaves. He goes down to Athens. He leaves Timothy and Silas behind. Right, right in the middle of where all this violence had been threatened. Timothy, the reason I bring that up is Timothy has a reputation for timidity. Perhaps for being less than courageous. And that reputation is largely due to what I think is a superficial understanding of verse 7 of our passage tonight. But if we reconstruct the historical situation, both Silas and Timothy stayed behind in a dangerous situation. Paul was the most visible member of that ministry team, to be sure. But it's no secret that Timothy and Silas were a part of that group. For Timothy to agree to stay behind in the face of the threat of extreme violence hardly argues for timidity or cowardice as a predominant character trait for Timothy. Timothy and his Silas eventually rejoin Paul when he gets down to Corinth. And then Timothy next appears with Paul in Ephesus on his third missionary journey from where Paul sends Erastus and Timothy into Macedonia ahead of himself. In the last mention of Timothy, we have an act in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, verse 4, he was included in the list of goodwill ambassadors who were to accompany Paul to Jerusalem with this offering for the Christian Jews. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 23, the author there, and it's not likely Paul, but whoever the author was, reports that Timothy had been released from prison at that time and hopes to come with Timothy to visit the readers of that letter. So this idea about Timothy being timid Timothy, I think has been a bit overdone. In fact, if you read older commentaries, uh, they, they make a big issue of this. More modern commentaries are starting to back off of it. More modern New Testament scholarship is backing off the idea that Timothy was, was somehow had a problem with cowardice. Timidity, as we'll see in, in verse 7, is an issue for all of us at one time or another. We'll, we'll see even then. It was an issue for Paul from time to time. He, he prays that he would be bold in, in the presentation of the gospel. But this idea about timid, timid Timothy, I think, is actually a, um, a red herring. It's, it's a rabbit trail that we go down. And it, and it actually, I believe, uh, too much of a focus on that will, will uh, allow us to miss the main point of the passage. So I, so I really don't think we should go there. In, in verse 4, Paul says, continuing on in verse, from verse three, 3 where we ended off last time, that he's longing to see you, speaking of Paul to Timothy, even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. This is another phrase that has caused people to say that, that Timothy was timid. I don't know why. I think that's totally un, unfair and um and probably mentioned by people that are timid themselves. When Paul mentions tears in verse 4, he speaks of an episode that we really know nothing about. It could be that Paul is referring here to the last time the two of them parted, but we just don't know. What we can tell, what I can tell you, is that there was a, a deep affection between these two men. There was a very close friendship. They had worked together, again, for 16 years in this ministry. 
it's very likely that Paul was older than Timothy. I think that's almost a, sh- a sure thing, probably significantly older than Timothy. And of the two, it's, it's very clear that Paul is the mentor and Timothy is the student. All of us, I think in one way or another, have had mentors, people who have helped mold us and shaped us uh, spiritually. Ultimately, all of, uh, the mentor for all of us is the Holy Spirit. But don't forget that the Holy Spirit uses human individuals to help come alongside from time to time and help maybe shave off some of the rough edges. I certainly have had uh, mentors that have done that. First was a fellow by the name of Roy Ledgerwood. Roy Ledgerwood is still a professor at the College of Biblical Studies. He's, uh, he's uh, an extremely fine Greek professor. Went through classical studies at the University of Houston and, and uh, was the first person that really started knocking some rough edges off of me. Now, if you look at me now, you, you're going to say, I don't, I, where were the rough edges that he knocked <laughs> off? Uh, I still see a lot, and I grant that. But, uh, but if you'd have seen me before, you would know that Roy did a great work. He was very patient, and he was very kind, and I needed somebody like that to come alongside at that point. I don't know if I could have gotten through Dallas Seminary if, if he hadn't knocked off some of the edges before I ever got there. Then in Dallas Seminary, there, there was two men that really, really came alongside. The Lord led them there. One was a man by the name of Elliot Johnson. I, I don't know that there's a kinder man on the planet than Elliot. He is just a, uh, he's just a fine Christian gentleman, but he had the courage of his convictions to say what needed to be said when it needed to be said. Back in those days, I was traveling back and forth from Houston to Dallas uh, every Tuesday and Thursday. My routine was to get up about 2 to 2.30 in the morning, and I would drive to Dallas, stop in Centerville, take a short nap there so I wouldn't fall asleep in Corsicana, then get up there, get right out of the car, and get in to go to class. I had it timed out perfectly if there wasn't a traffic jam or an accident or something. And I never forget this one particular Monday. This one Monday night, we had a board meeting, a deacon's meeting. And I had told the board before we ever started, I really need to be finished by 9 so that I can be home by 10, so I can be in bed by 11, and at least get three hours of sleep before I had to get up the next day. One of our beloved board members at that time is a, is a good man, but, but he um, had a little blip of the brain that night. He decided at five minutes till nine to bring up a major change in the doctrinal statement. Actually, it had to do with the doctrine of salvation in the doctrinal statement. It wasn't good timing, you know, because it did delay it in the meeting about another 20 minutes, but I very forcefully, I very forcefully told him that that was an improper thing to do. I won't get into the details of what I said, but it, but it, was, it was forceful. Then I did get up, go to Dallas the next morning, and I told Elliot Johnson about this, thinking that he would pat me on the back for my forceful, and, it, and I will have to say it was an aggressive and forceful, probably over-the-top response to that particular deacon at the time thinking Elliot would just praise me because he held the same view it was it was basically that I was holding firm for the gospel Elliot looked right at me and he said uh, I don't think so I said you don't think so what it, we were in an independent study together this wasn't in front of a whole class this was just in his office and he said I I think you were a little harsh with that man I said but you don't understand he was trying to change the doctoral statement at five minutes to nine I need to get home he said I think I do understand he said that person is one of your sheep isn't he? That's, it's God's sheep, but he's one, that, he's one that God puts you in charge of shepherding. I said, yes, he is. And he said, if you really said to him what you said to me, that you said to him. I said, I did, just like that. He said, then you tried to destroy him with your words. You weren't shepherding him. You were way over the top. You were attempting to destroy him. Doesn't this sound like Elliot? 
And he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go down tomorrow. I want you to call him back up, and I want you to apologize to that man. I said, well, all right, I'll do it. Then he said, in addition to that, I want you to apologize to all the other deacons that were present there that day. And I said, they were on my side. They're glad that I did it. And he said, that's not the point. The point is, I want you to apologize to all of them because you were out of line. Now, because I respected him so much, I listened to him. He was, he was mentoring me. He was, he was speaking for the Holy Spirit, I believe. God was working through him to talk to me. I went back down and wished to call, call the man, apologized to him for being so harsh. We had a good talk about it, and I think everything was fine. I went back up to the school on Thursday, had my next session of an independent study with him, and it was in hermeneutics. And, and the first thing he said, first thing he said when he sat down, did you call up those gentlemen? I said, I sure did. I called up the guy, and I apologized to him, and he picked that up. And he said, how about the other men that were in the room? I said, well, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't get around to calling them. But, I, but again, I said, they, they really were on my side. He said, that's not what I told you. I said, I told you to go back there and call them. And I called him because I knew the next Tuesday he was going to ask me about it again. It, it, was, it was nice. And he spent time with me. Another man that, that did the same thing was Bob Leitner. Now, Bob Leitner and Ellie Johnson have different personalities. But Bob Leitner came along, alongside at, at the right time as well. Dr. Leitner showed me how you could stand firm in the truth, but you could also do so with a certain amount of gentleness and kindness and love. Because if there's anybody that has the, 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 his own convictions, it's Bob Leitner, <laughs> that's to be sure. But he has, a, he has a nice way of doing it, speaking the truth in love. So the point is, don't shy away from the term mentor. Don't, don't overuse it so it becomes a silly term either. But God the Holy Spirit uses those in the Christian community from time to time to come alongside at the right time and maybe speak a word of encouragement to you or perhaps a, a gentle word of correction. If that's the case, don't become offended by that. You know, if, if they've earned the right to do it, then listen. Now, on the other hand, if you think God the Holy Spirit's leading you to do something like that, make sure you've earned the right to do it first. I listened to those three men because I knew they loved me, and they had spent time with me, and I knew they had my best interest in mind. If one of it, somebody had just come up out of the blue and had spoken something like that, then I would, be, I would have been offended, and it wouldn't have worked. So Paul has ministered to Timothy for all these 16 years. Paul considers Timothy a son, and Paul is in prison, and now he longs to see Timothy. And he recalls a past meeting. Verse 5. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which was first, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it is in you as well. This phrase actually could be translated like the New American Standard does, for I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. Or it could be translated, having received a reminder of your sincere, and this word sincere means unhypocritical, faith. I actually prefer the latter uh, translation, having received a reminder of your sincere faith. And again, that sincere is, is where we get the English word unhypocritical from. Again, we don't know the circumstances of what this reminder was that Paul received. Some interpreters are of the opinion that in Rome, something had now just happened which reminded the Apostle Paul of Timothy's early faith. Others believe that maybe Paul had received a letter from Timothy. And still others suggest that someone who knew all about this younger man's childhood and the subsequent conversion had come and visited Paul in prison 
And that in their conversation, memories were brought to the surface about incidents that had happened long ago in the life of Timothy. We just don't know. Whatever the nature of the reminder from someone who was outside of Paul himself, whatever the nature of it, it fills Paul's soul with a longing to see Timothy. When, when his grandmother and his mother are mentioned, we see that he had a strong family heritage of faith. And that is such a blessing. If you've got it, thank God for it. I know not everybody here does. There, there are folks here that didn't grow up in a Christian home. Uh, far from it. But if you did, when you're thanking God for the blessings that you enjoy, don't forget that one. And, and Timothy should have been thankful for both his mother and his grandmother. And Paul is certain that just like they had a sincere faith, they had a serious faith, that Timothy had followed in that pathway as well. Now look at verse 6. And for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hand. As Paul goes through this, he now he moves seamlessly into what many consider the body of the letter. Now different Bibles will have it broken down different ways. But many expositors, many New Testament scholars rather, see the body of the letter beginning with verse 6. Because Paul knows Timothy's faith is sincere, he can remind Timothy to fan his spiritual gift of evangelism into full flame, to do battle with those in Ephesus who would hinder the work of the ministry. When we get to chapter 4, verse 5, we'll see Paul mention the gift of evangelism associated with Timothy. That's why I say that perhaps it's the gift of evangelism that Paul wants just fanned into full flame. Actually, the, the translation here in the New American Standard, Kindle Afresh, is, a, is again a possibility for understanding, but I believe it is better understood as fan into full flame. If you have a variety of different Bibles in your home and you look at how these verses are translated, you'll see that, that there, are, there are some differences in the way the texts are translated. Most do a really, really fine job, but, but some of the subtleties, I think, are better explained by one translation over another. Also, this is just a FYI. When you, when you have several different translations available to you and you see that the translations differ, you also see that perhaps it was a more difficult phrase to get from Greek into English. The best translations are not necessarily the most stilted, the most uh, literal translations. And I guess I should get Will to, to speak on this particular subject, but I'll go ahead and, and do it. And I think, uh, I don't believe he would have any disagreement with me. The idea of translation is to get the thought from one language into the thought of another language. Sometimes a little translation, a word-for-word stilted translation does that the best. Sometimes it doesn't. So when you see varying translations in, these, in your English text, you see uh, you, you probably have an underlying Greek text where the translators had a difficult time getting it from one language into another. But I believe this, this idea of fanning into full flame is what's going on here. I remind you to fan into full flame the gift of God. What Paul's really doing is he's encouraging Timothy to continue on just like he has been going, to keep his spiritual gift continually at his full potential, at the full potential of the spiritual gift. It reminds me, and I, I know 
I'm no engineer. I, uh, Paul Shockley was, was enamored with trains all his life. Perhaps he could tell you better, but, but at least from watching the movies, particularly some of the older Western movies, you know, you'd have a, a man on the train whose job was to take some coal or even to take some wood, I guess, in some of the older trains, but they would shovel that coal in there. And the fast, I remember seeing one film one time, they wanted to go real fast, so they had a couple guys just really shoveling a lot of coal in there to get that flame really burning really fast. And that's kind of the picture that I get here of Paul and Timothy. Paul's telling Timothy, listen, things in Ephesus are tough, and they're about to get tougher. This is not the time to let the, the flame uh, burn down. This is the time to get that shovel out and get as much coal on that fire as you possibly can so that thing is just burning real hot and that engine can go really fast. He's going to need it because of what's going on in Ephesus at the time. Now, when, when Paul says uh, that the gift of God which was laid on through the laying of my hands, he is not implying that he's the one that gave Timothy the spiritual gift. After all, it's Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians 12. And then the passages in Romans that talk about spiritual gifts. And it's Paul that says that, first of all, that those spiritual gifts were given for the common good and that each of us gets one. Some of them are identifiable. Some just work as you walk in fellowship with God. Some have to be identified and, and because there's certain training, I think, that's involved to, uh, in, in some of them. And then others don't have to be identified. You just get in fellowship and they, they function. But everybody's got giftedness, and generally speaking, in any one given congregation, every spiritual gift may not be there. The larger the congregation, the more likely it is that every spiritual gift is represented. You get a congregation like Second Baptist, and I would imagine that with the number of people they've got, every possible spiritual gift is represented there. You get a smaller church, you may not have every single spiritual gift represented. No one person has all the spiritual gifts. God didn't do it that way. You see, we were designed to worship in community. And I know that makes some of you a little uncomfortable because you're just not a community kind of guy or a girl. But that's the way we were designed to function. We were never designed to be individuals out there all by ourselves. We were designed to function in community. And that's why different spiritual gifts were given to different individuals for the common good. That's why Paul will use a body analogy when he makes this uh, assertion in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, when he'll, he'll say that there are different parts of the body, but all these parts are important to be a healthy, functioning body. Now, I know people who, who don't have their legs, and they are alive. But I assure you, they'd be the first one to tell you that if they had their legs, they would be a, a more healthy organism because they could get and move around and, and all the various things that they could do. You know, if, if you were to have your spleen taken out, and that's done from time to time, you, you can still live, but your body is never going to function as, as with the efficiency that it's designed to function with if you don't have a particular part. So all the spiritual gifts are designed to complement one another and they're designed for the common good. You see, that's why when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul seems to argue against the gift of tongues, at least, at least in the way that the Corinthians were practicing it. Because the way they were practicing this gift of tongues was obviously not for the common good. It was, 
allegedly edifying themselves, but it wasn't edifying anybody else. So Paul says, time out, wait a minute, you're breaking the first principle. If it really is a spiritual gift, it's supposed to be edifying other people, not simply yourself. Now, it doesn't mean you can't be edified by your own spiritual gift, but spiritual gifts are to edify others. They're not to enrich yourself, and they're not primarily to edify yourself. My spiritual giftedness was given me not to build me up, it was to build up you. And then your spiritual giftedness, whatever that may be, and, and there's as many people as in this room, there are spiritual gifts represented. Those spiritual gifts were not given to you to build you up. They were given to build up the people around you. And if we get that idea, then we have a healthy church. But if you've got a church where, the, where too many people sit back and just say, I, I came here to, to be served and not to serve, not to allow the expression of my spiritual gift and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to be sure, to be expressed to the whole congregation, then we have an unhealthy church. If a church is growing, if a church is growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then as well as in the application of that knowledge, as per James, then a maximum number of people will be functioning with, their, with regard to their spiritual gifts. And it will happen just naturally. Some of you may have a spiritual gift of encouragement. And it happens naturally. It's not phony. But people don't take it that way. You may, you may have a spiritual gift of just coming up behind somebody or alongside somebody that you know has had a rough time. And you put your arm around him and say, hey, listen, I'm praying for you. And if it's genuine, if it's really coming from the spiritual gift in this, it'll lift that person up. You, you may, there's, I know there's at least a few people in our church that have a spiritual gift in this of writing out cards to people who are ill. It's a gift because if you had never got one of those cards, you hadn't probably been sick enough yet. But when you do, it's a beautiful thing. So everybody, and I just mentioned those, those two, there are, there are many. You can look at some of the list in, the, in, in 1 Corinthians and in Romans as well, but in Ephesians too, it's Ephesians as well. But the gift was not imparted by Paul. What Paul's doing here is he's recognizing that giftedness by the laying on of hands. This is a symbolic gesture where Paul is recognizing the giftedness that uh, Timothy has. He's not giving the gift itself. I hope that's clear. When churches do ordination services, and that's one of the places where we kind of get this idea from, when churches do ordination services, generally speaking, either the entire body, if it's not a real large body of believers, or at least the leadership of that body, will come and lay hands on a person, and someone will pray. That is not the impartation of the gift. That is a church recognizing that someone is actually gifted in that area. But it's really even more than that. It's the church putting an endorsement upon that person. That's why when you look at, for example, ordaining one into pastoral ministries, when a church does that, that church had better research that person fairly well. It needs to be more than just an academic questionnaire. There's a, there are character issues as well. When I went through my ordination, it's, it seemed to be half academics and half character. And that was a very valid way of doing it. And uh, had, the, had my home church not believed that, uh, maybe believed I had the academic uh, credentialing, but, but had character issues, they wouldn't have ordained me. And nor should they have. Because there seems to be this implication that if a church ordains someone too hastily and that person goes out and does the wrong thing, that that church that did the ordaining is going to share in that discipline of the person that's gone out. So we have to be careful with that. So 
that's what Paul means by the laying on of the hands. And now in verse 7, this is the key passage, and we'll, this will be our, our final verse for tonight. For God has not given us the spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Some commentators capitalize the word spirit here, and perhaps even in your Bibles, some of your Bibles might have it capitalized, understanding it as a, re- as a reference to the Holy Spirit. New American Standard has it as a small s, uh, taking the word pneuma uh, to be more likely understood as spirit with a small s, meaning a person's attitude or disposition, as opposed to the Holy Spirit. This is the more natural reading, I think, of the text, and Paul uses pneuma that way, the word spirit, in Romans 8.15 when he talks about the spirit of slavery. Uh, I'm sorry, Romans uh, 11.8. Or a spirit of stupor in 1 Corinthians 4.21. A spirit of gentleness in 2 Corinthians 4. The same spirit of faith in Galatians 1. Or a spirit of gentleness again in in Philippians 1.27. You see the point. There are other usages. It's not quite the same as the use of pneuma or the word spirit that designates the human spirit as separate from the body, in other words, the immaterial part of man. But it is a related concept. So, Paul says, For God has not given us a spirit or an attitude or a disposition. Now the word is timidity. The Greek term is dahlia, and most translate that, timidity, believing that verse 6, along with other passages suggests that Timothy had an inclination toward timidity. And again, it may have been true to a small degree, but I say again, I believe that that's been overemphasized in the history of interpretation of the pastoral epistles. And it's not just me. Most most modern interpreters feel that that's been overemphasized. In fact, a spirit of timidity, as I said before, is present in most of us to one degree or another at one time or another. And you know what I'm talking about. Even Paul himself asks for prayer that he might, in his words, open his mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. We don't think of Paul that way sometimes. We think of Timothy as being the meek, mild, timid Timothy. But Paul is the bold presenter of the gospel. Well, Now watch. If there wasn't something in the background of Paul's soul and his spirit that was causing him to to be a little timid in certain of those situations, then he wouldn't have prayed, he wouldn't have asked us to pray, or ask his original listeners, to pray for him to be bold. you see the point? And nobody nobody goes out there and talks about how Paul was timid. It's just, I I think it's that, that timid rhymes with Timothy, and so it became some sort of preaching tool, and people just started believing it. I just don't think it's fair. I also think, again, that you... If you start implying that Timothy was a coward, you're missing the point. It's just like anybody who starts implying that, that Peter was some sort of massive loser. You're, you're missing the point. Yes, Peter failed. He sure did. But then he came back, and he was used of God in a way that very few people were used in the first century. When we start talking, and, and somebody came and spoke here one time. It took me several months to correct it. Uh, made an illustration of the fact that he hadn't spoken here. Well, yeah, he did one time since, but I was very careful with him. But uh, of the fact that all the disciples were a bunch of losers, and that it was the women at the cross that were the ones that were courageous. 
problem with that is he forgot that John was there at the foot of the cross as well. That's kind of a little convenient thing to forget. And the other thing is the women weren't in any danger. The disciples were the ones that were in danger of being crucified had they showed up. They weren't going to crucify Jesus' mother. I mean, even the Romans wouldn't have done that. That's, that wasn't part of the package. So sometimes we just mess up when we start focusing on these individuals and miss the beauty of what's being spoken here. And, and there is beauty in this passage. There's a contrast here. God has not given us a, a spirit of love, and then there's a strong contrast between what he has given us. He has given us a spirit of power. I mean, he hasn't given us simply a, I said love, he hasn't given us simply a spirit of timidity. The strong contrast, he's given us a, a spirit of power, of love, and of and of uh, what the New American Center says is discipline. It could also be understood as self-control. Paul is not implying that Timothy is a coward. If cowardice describes what Timothy was, then power, love, and self-control would describe what Timothy was not. And nobody really wants to say that. You see the point. If, if timidity describes what Timothy was, then power, love, and self-control describe what Timothy's not. And that certainly seems unlikely. Instead of cowardice, God gave Timothy a spirit of power. Timothy had been given power by the Holy Spirit to accomplish the plan of God. This word dunamis is the word that's the Greek term for power. It occurs elsewhere in the pastorals in, in verse 8 of this same um, I'm sorry, it occurs in the pastorals uh, where Timothy is told to suffer hardship together with Paul for the gospel according to the power of God. In verse 8, 2 Timothy chapter uh, 1, verse 8. It occurs in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, where Paul says that the opponents have a mere form of godliness but deny its power. So Paul and Timothy both have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do God's work. One Asian Christian said one time, it's amazing to watch what American Christianity can do apart from the Spirit's power. He didn't mean that as a compliment. It wasn't a compliment. It is true. Sometimes American Christianity does seem to rely on our own talent or our, our own ingenuity to accomplish God's plan. That's never the way it was supposed to be accomplished. God works through us. He empowers us to, to perform the work that he wants us to do. And Timothy had been empowered by that. So he didn't have a spirit of timidity or cowardice, but he had a spirit of power. And that's the Holy Spirit working through him. He also had a spirit of love. Remember, there were antagonists, let's call them, in Ephesus toward Timothy. Paul mentions them in 1 Timothy. He's going to bring them up again in 2 Timothy. People who were doing everything they could to slow down the work of the gospel. And what Paul says is in contrast to Timothy's opponents in Ephesus, Timothy's character is, or, or at least should be, characterized by love. Paul tells us that the mark of the Christian is love. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Here's the bottom line of this. There is a temptation. I'll be very frank and upfront with you tonight. There is a temptation that exists in leadership 
to handle conflict with an attitude that is less than loving. It's understandable in that much of what comes at you in leadership is not necessarily spoken in love. And this happens between believer and believer, and it's wrong. And what happens, people come to leaders, I'm not talking about our church particularly, I'm talking about any church. You talk about any seminary. And when people have complaints, ordinarily good, honest, wonderful Christian people check their love at the door, and they come in with their complaints in a vicious way, expecting that the one that they're complaining to will respond in gentleness and love. And if that leader is mature, they will. But you, as being the one, if, if you ever happen to be that person, or me, if I ever happen to be that person, if we're the ones that go and do the complaining with a spirit of anger, and the person responds to us in a spirit of love, first thing is, it is very convicting to see someone return anger with love. Second of all, they're going to be blessed, and I'm going to be the one that's going to be disciplined. If I'm the one that's treating them that way. So there is a temptation, and I'm sure Timothy was tempted when these antagonists in Ephesus showed him anything but love. And I'm sure he was tempted to, to respond in kind, but that's not what his job was. You see, the rules are different. Back, back when I was uh, played football in, in my younger days, if you were losing, you could just hit somebody harder. You know, you just, you just, got, you just got, a, you got your mean on, you got down, and you just drove them off the ball. That's not the way to win in Christianity. You see, the rules are different. We've got to change our thinking. The way to win in Christianity is to love them. And the whole world looks like you just lost, but you're not playing before the world, are you? You're really supposed to be living this life before an audience of one. Now, that doesn't mean the world is irrelevant. In fact, perhaps, maybe, some of the most arrogant people are the ones that say, I don't care what anybody else thinks about me. Think about it. Actually, that's going over the top too far the other way because you're saying, I'm so far above everybody else, I don't care what they think. But there's a balance there. Ultimately, I am, I am living this life for an audience of one. And if he's satisfied with my loving response, it doesn't matter if somebody else thinks I'm a coward or thinks I'm less than manly. I, I, you know, that's, that's your business. If my Lord's happy with me, then, then that's when I'm going to be happy. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy here. You know, I cannot imagine being the president at one of those press conferences. You've seen them, haven't you? Where, where the reporters aren't asking honest questions, wanting honest answers, but they're simply asking questions designed to make them look smart and the president look stupid. You know? Sometimes I think if I was him, I would say this. And he doesn't. He just stands there and, and very calmly, you know. Yeah. No, madam, I'm I'm not an idiot. I haven't lost my mind. You know. I mean, it's just it, it, some of the most vicious. They don't ask questions. They they make speeches. <laughs> to stand there with poise is much more difficult than it looks. I, I'm sure of that. But in ministry. You're not just called upon to stand there with poise, because I'm sure sometimes even the, the president is seething inside. And I'm sure he's making a mental note, 
make sure that person does not get invited back, you know. <laughs> or, and I know this happened in at least one case, she's not getting any more questions. She can raise her hand all she wants, and she's been in the press corps for four decades. Too bad. You made one too many speeches. I won't tell you what her name is, but that actually happened in one of the last press conferences. But the, the president may stand there with poise, but that's not what you're called upon to do in ministry. You're called upon to take one further step. Now, I'm talking about pastoral ministry now, but it applies to you as well in interpersonal conflict. You're not called upon to just stand there with poise but seething inside. You're called upon to do one step further than that, to stand there with poise with love inside. Didn't say it was going to be easy. And I already told you, you're not going to be able to do this without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, this is impossible to do. It's humanly impossible. Remember in the, in the book of Philippians, Paul outlines a problem that he has there. And he, and he says some remarkable things about the people who are his antagonists, as he writes to the Philippians anyway. And then finally at the end of that, he says, you know what? doesn't matter to me. As long as Christ is being preached, I don't care if they're preaching it for the money or they're preaching it for their own uh, self-esteem. If Christ is being preached, then it's okay by me. And he must have meant that. I, I mean, I've read that dozens of times thinking... How could he say that? What a mature man he was. He, he is a model, first of all. He's not, he's not the model, but he is certainly someone worthy of being emulated. That's why he says, imitate me. Because I'm imitating Christ. Finally, the last phrase. The New American Standard translates the last word of verse 7 as disciplined. And again, that's possible. So Paul is saying, but a spirit of power, love, and discipline if you understand the breadth of the possible meanings of the word discipline, other translations have it as sound mind. I think the New King James translates it sound mind. It could perhaps be understood as sound judgment. Here I think the context leads towards sound judgment. Timothy is in the middle of a spiritual battle with the Ephesian antagonists, and sound judgment is necessary. It's essential to victory in this conflict. All three of these virtues are a result of the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit working through Timothy. So we see in verses 3 through 7 that Paul's prayers were regular and included thanksgiving to God for his good friend and his fellow minister in the gospel, Timothy. He prayed those prayers with a clear conscience, following the pattern of those who had gone before him. Paul longed to see Timothy face to face. But in the meantime, he encourages his young partner in ministry to exercise the power of God in love with sound judgment rather than with a spirit of cowardice. Well, we'll continue this next time.